mindfulness mode. You know, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what, how low your task is, it's a part of something bigger. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. Today, I am featuring an author. He's a physicist. He's a lecturer. He's the author of the book, My Big Toe, which you might have heard of. Toe meaning theory of everything. And this is a trilogy. And in the books, he discusses the origins of consciousness, which is just a fascinating topic for this podcast and it brings together science and philosophy physics and metaphysics mind and matter purpose and meaning and also touches on the normal and the paranormal and these writings are based on the simulation argument which takes the position that reality is both virtual and subjective so sit back relax and enjoy part one of my discussion with the author Thomas Campbell. I'm here today with Tom Campbell. Tom, are you in mindfulness mode today? <laughs> uh, yes, I am. I pretty much live there, Bruce. That's uh, mindfulness isn't a thing you do, it's a thing you become. And I know you live there because of reading and listening to you on videos and, and just learning so much about mm -hmm. you. And I felt a little silly asking that question, but I always ask my guests that question. But what does mindfulness mean to you? And I know that this is a, a, a silly question, but just to start off with a little uh, a short uh, answer to what mindfulness means to you, then we'll get into a lot more detail about consciousness okay. and mindfulness. Okay. It's great to have you with us. Great to have you here, oh, thank Tom. You. Thank you, Bruce. I, I appreciate the invitation. Um, mindfulness, of course, is not a real uh, precise term. You know, so there's probably you know, at least four or five, six ways to look at it. And when you look at it in each of those different ways, you'll get a little better. You know, if you look at it in all the ways, you'll get a little better idea of just what mindfulness is. So let me kind of state it and then restate it in, in multiple ways. You know, being, being mindful means that you have some discipline with your consciousness. Uh, an undisciplined conscious, consciousness is kind of zinging off on all sorts of thoughts and places and things. And to be mindful it requires you to have some discipline. So mindfulness takes a little work. It's not something that's just a, a trivial you know, thing to do. It takes work for people to develop that, that those skills. Mindfulness is about whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it purposefully. You're aware that you're doing it and you're doing it, you know, for a reason. And you're aware of that reason, which means it's the opposite of being on automatic. It's the opposite of being a zombie. You know, it's, a, it's, it's the opposite of just kind of drifting through life, uh, turning the crank that you always turn and you're so habituated to that crank that you just never think about really much of anything. You just go from, you just repeat every day, sort of like it was the last day. You know, you get up, you go to work, you know, you push buttons and, do, you know, work your mouse at work and you come home and you eat dinner and you watch TV and, you know, it's that sort of thing. So that's not mindful. That's just letting your life run on automatic. Mindfulness is kind of the first step in getting to know who you are, getting to know your own consciousness. Until you're mindful, you don't really know who you are. 
you make choices, but most of those choices tend to be made because of your fear, because of your ego, because of your expectations, because of uh, what you see as duty or requirements or whatever. They're not really thought about. They're not really owned by you. They're just things you do, you see. So when you are mindful, you have to be aware of why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you thinking what you're thinking? You have to be, oh, <laughs> well, mindful. I guess that's really what mindful means, you know? Your, your mind is not uh, drifting. So if you have a lot of ego and have a lot of fear and beliefs, then your mind tends to run around a lot more. It tends to do less thinking. It tends to be less aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it because you're just playing out little scenarios that you've learned. Oh, you have this fear. So when this happens, you shy away or you get belligerent or you get angry. And it's not so much that you're really aware of what you're doing. You're just doing it at a, out of habit. And you don't really own yourself. Not in, the, not in the sense that you really know who you are and why you make the choices you make. You just make them because that's what pops up. That's the automatic response. So mindfulness is awareness. It's awareness of self and awareness of why. And awareness of what to, what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the purpose and the point. And how does it fit into everything else? And, you know, because you are not on an island by yourself. You are interactive with lots and lots of other people and things. You have responsibilities and being aware of all those linkages and all of those connections and how what you do affects other people. That's being mindful. So you're aware of others. It's not just you off on your own little island doing the things you do, but why am I doing this? And the answer to why is often because of some interaction, some connection with other people. And that connection should be fully in your mind as you're doing whatever you're doing. So that's the point of being mindful. What did um, Ram Dass say? Be here now, right? That was the title of one of his books, I believe. And that's basically another way of stating mindfulness. You know, yeah. be here now. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you, you spoke of fear quite a bit there and once we start be to become aware of our fears how do we do the work to move into the next stage well first is to become aware that you have the fear right and if you're not aware you have the fear then you're not going to deal with it or work with it it's just there and you're just kind of at its mercy you make choices based upon it how you can tell whether you have fear is Look at all of the feelings that you've had over the past week or month or even day. And anytime you feel negative, okay, if you feel negative, by that I mean angry, uh, unhappy, uh, feel like you're not getting the respect you're due, you're, you're anxious, you're stressed, all of these things are negatives as far as feelings go. <laughs> Positives, as far as feeling goes, are things like peace and joy and happiness and satisfaction. That's the positive side. So if it's not on the positive side, 
then it's probably on the negative side. There's a few things that are neutral, but mostly it's one way or the other, positive or negative. So if you feel negative feelings, then you have fear. The only reason you feel those negative feelings is because it's triggering some sort of fear. So that's how you know you have the fear. Now, how do you how do you kind of isolate it and, and know what it what you know what the fear is? Well, look at those feelings that you had that are negative and ask yourself, why do I feel like that? You know, okay, somebody just said something that was really annoying to me. Why do I get annoyed with that? And then you'll go, you'll work that back and say, well, I'm annoyed because George said so-and-so. And you'll have to say, no, George doesn't make you angry. You choose to be angry. Angry is your choice of a response. So then you start thinking, well, George just was rude. And my choice of response was to be angry because George was indicating that I was wrong or that I had failed in what I was trying to do or that uh, I'm not a very good person. And all of that resonates with a fear I have of not being adequate, not being good enough, uh, you know, not being appreciated. Those are all fears. Um, not being thought of in a, in a positive way. Those are fears. So that's the fear that makes you angry when George is rude to you. See, if you didn't have those, if you didn't feel that fear and George was rude to you, you'd just think, huh, I wonder what's wrong with George. You see, it wouldn't trigger any kind of feedback. It wouldn't trigger defense. It wouldn't trigger getting even. It wouldn't trigger any of that stuff. The only reason you have those negative uh, feelings is because you have that fear. And the fear also produces a thing called ego, which is you trying to pretend that you don't have the fear. And it, it produces a lot of beliefs. You know, you believe things are in such a way that tends to deny the fear. So that's, that's fear. That's how you know you have it. That's how you have to kind of work backwards as to why am I feeling, you know, anxious? Why am I feeling nervous? Why am I feeling upset, annoyed, you know, unhappy? All of those things. Why is it? And you'll probably say, well, I'm feeling unhappy because things aren't the way I want them. Well, you'll have to realize you are not the master of the universe. Sometimes things will be the, you know, some other way than the way you want them. And that that's a part of life. And it's part of life when, again, you're not living by yourself on an island. You're interacting with a whole lot of other people who have their own issues and needs and wants. And it's not always about your needs and your wants. So if things happen and it's not what you wanted, you have to think about that and say, well, that's okay. You know, I don't have to always have what I want. That's not a, that's not a problem. Maybe we can see what George wants this time. He seems to be a little grouchy today. So maybe I can say something nice to George and uh, you know, change his mood rather than getting upset, you see, by what he says. So instead of getting angry, you start having more compassion for other people who, who are rude who are angry because you know they're unhappy, they're miserable, they're struggling, they're fearful. And when you meet fearful people, sure, sometimes they can be unpleasant, but it's not about you. It's about them. How can you help them? How can you help them deal with that or just defuse it or let that settle down? Because if you, if you get angry, 
all you do is throw gasoline on that on that fire. You know, you make everything worse when you react out of fear. So that's that's the key. Now that you've now that you've you've found you have fear, you found what the fears are, then the next thing to do is you have to have an intention, a very strong intention that says, I don't want to be like that. Don't say, I don't want to act like that because we're not trying to create better actors. We're trying to create better people. So it's not about your behavior. It's about your intent and how you feel inside. So say, I don't want to be like that. And if you're really sincere about that and put some oomph into that, that uh, decision, then eventually the fear will get less and less and less and will go away. Because with that attitude that you don't want to be like that, you'll start doing all the right things to not be like that. When George says something rude to you and you start to get angry, you'll stop yourself and you go, oh, no, don't want to go there. Okay. And then you will change the subject or say something nice or just ignore the, the slight or ask George, you know, how, how's his mother doing or whatever. You know, you, you deal with it in a positive way in a positive way. So don't feel bad that you can't get rid of a fear, you know, in a week or two, <laughs> getting rid of fears. These things are very deep seated and you may work on it for six months or a year or six years, you know, but just keep working on it and have that intent and you will get over it. And when you get over it, you'll feel like a big weight's been lifted off your shoulders. You'll feel so much lighter and so much better. And you will be making your way toward being mindful in the sense that you're no longer a knee-jerk reaction to what other people do. That's not mindful at all. That's that's you know, you know the knee-jerk, right? The, to take the little rubber hammer and hit your knee, <laughs> yeah. and you don't intend for your leg to fly out there. It just doesn't. That's right. Well, that's the way your anger is. You're yeah. you don't you don't necessarily oh I should get angry now. You just burst out with anger. And that is the opposite of mindful. That is not good. So getting rid of fear is one of the ways that you become mindful. Yeah, it really is. And I, and I just love how you talked about compassion because I found, you know, in my own life, I started to recognize, oh, there are certain people that I notice that rub me the wrong way. Why do I feel that way about that person? Why don't I begin to feel more compassion about that person? And in doing that, it was a real exercise that made me feel so much better than in the past. And uh, so the more compassion you can feel, the better it is. Is that true? Oh, yes, definitely. The more positive you are, the easier it is to become more positive. And the more positive the people around you will be. Uh, matter of fact, you'll be surprised that, you know, if, if George comes up and he's rude to you and he kind of is rude to most everybody and he's just a rude person because he likes putting other people down to make himself feel better. If that's just his personality, you'll find out that if you don't push back, if you don't get upset, you don't get angry, but you just deal with it positively. George may still go around and be rude to most other people, but he won't be rude to you anymore. He'll stop. So you, you're not only are improving yourself, but you're helping everybody else improve themselves as well. Yeah, often when we see people and we just 
they rub you the wrong way and you don't like them, it's because we fear that they have an attitude or a belief or something about them that's going to be in conflict with us that we're not that we're really not going to like. But that's just our assumption. That's not reality yet. So stay positive with the idea that, well, if it is like that, then I can deal with it positively. If it isn't like that, then, well, you know, I'll have a new friend. You know, it's that sort of thing. So as long as you can deal with those things positively, then there's no need to shy away. Let people be rude. Let people be, you know, forceful or pushy or whatever. You just deal with it positively without the negative emotions. And now you don't, you don't have to shy away from people that you're afraid are going to hit, you know, are going to do something to annoy you or upset you or that you disagree with. It's all right to disagree with people. People can have all kinds of bizarre ideas and, you know, you don't, you know, it's no negative to you if they have a bizarre idea. It's the way it is. And it's not your job to fix them, to fix their ideas and make sure their ideas are more like what you think they should have. <laughs> yeah. So that's another part is you just have to let people be whoever they are and accept them that way. Yeah. And the more negative they are, then, you know, the more unhappy they are, the more miserable they are. Yeah. And then the more compassion you have. Yeah. Yeah, I love how you put that. And on our show, we talk about the inner bully a lot. We talk about our own inner bully. Tell us where that comes from, that inner voice that is beating us up, that is so negative, so nasty toward us. Well, that comes directly out of the fear, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You know, if you fear that you are inadequate or unlovable or, you know, whatever, you know, not... Uh, not gaining the respect or, or whatever that, that you think you should have. If you, if you think of those things, that's because really you're not too, you're not okay with yourself. You have negative attitudes towards yourself. That's what that means. People who are unhappy and miserable, they may act like they're masters of the universe and they own everything and, you know, they're powerful and strong and have a smile on their face, but they're miserable, unhappy people. And they don't like themselves. That's the, that's the key thing. That's what makes us act that way. That inner, that inner bully is us voicing that fear that we are not adequate, that we're not, that we're not good enough, that, uh, we might as well not even try, you know, that sort of thing. You know, one of the one of the, the most common strategies that people take in dealing with their fears is that, uh, you know, if I don't play, I can't lose. If I don't play the game, then I can't lose the game. But the fact is, if you don't play, they'll always lose because the game is called interaction with other people. You know, the game is, is growing up becoming positive and caring and loving of other people. And if you don't interact with other people or play that game, you know, get involved. Uh, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, embrace, you know, life and people, even the ugly part, you know, even the, even the grouchy part. But if you don't embrace it, then you will lose because that's where, that's where the, the value in you and in your being and who you are really shows itself is through your interactions with other, with other people. 
So yeah, the idea that you won't be able, you won't lose if you don't play keeps a lot of people from engaging that otherwise would engage. And because they're afraid that if they do engage, it'll come out negatively. They'll be rejected. Somebody will be disappointed in what they do. They'll be ignored, uh, you know, so on. They don't have much to contribute. They got all these negative attitudes toward themselves because of their fear. So that's right up there with, you know, I said, if you've had negative feelings, well, if you have that inner bully, that's a negative feeling. That's a very strong one. It is. A very obvious, a very obvious one. That'll tell you exactly what your fears are. Yes, it will. In your books, Tom, you talk a lot about a free will awareness unit. Tell us about that. Well, I have a, a model of consciousness, you know, a consciousness model, for one. And knowing that consciousness is fundamental and, and the physical is not, is a derivative of consciousness, that, that consciousness model also turns out to be a, a, a model of the objective world as well. So it's a, it's a model that does better physics uh, and, and solves a lot of the, 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 the um, paradoxes that are in physics now. So it's just a general uh, model of mine. Now, where were you going? What was the line there? I lost that. Well, a free will awareness unit. Free will awareness yeah. unit, yes. So in this model, I have various functions of consciousness, and I give them names just so we can talk about sure. it. So, so the model is metaphorical. So I start with the larger consciousness system, which is a metaphor for source. It's what's at the bottom. And then that... Um, breaks apart into pieces of individuated unit of consciousness. And that's, that's my next little thing. And that's the thing that accumulates experience. It has experience and interacts with each other, with other individuated units of, of consciousness and with the, the system. And then when they want to participate in a experience that has a lot of very important consequential choices in it, by which they grow. That's how you grow and evolve your consciousness is by making choices. You make good choices and you grow up. If you make bad choices, you, you know, you de-evolve instead of evolve. So that part of that individual unit of consciousness that logs on to this virtual reality game, okay, that is what we consider is our own personal consciousness. That's us. Now, the model here is that this body is not really who I am. This body is an avatar and who I am is, is the player of the avatar. I'm the player that makes all the choices for that avatar. So that's kind of the context. If, if your listeners are <laughs> having their eyeballs rolling up in their head, what does all this mean? Uh, you know, my model sees uh, as do most people in particle physics and quantum physics, they, I see reality as information-based, which is physics has kind of gone there in those fields. But physicists just leave it at that. They just say information-based. And if you say, well, what did that mean? And they'll say, I don't really know what that means. I just know through experiments that that's what, it's, that's what it is. It's based on information. Well, what that means basically is that the reality is computed. It's what information-based 
is it's computed, which is the same as a simulation, which is the same as a virtual reality. So it's really saying that our reality is a computed reality, a virtual reality. And uh, people right away say, well, who's the programmer? You know, there is no programmer. It's a, it's a model that uh, is the whole model starts with initial conditions and a rule set and it evolves. That's our physical universe is a model, a simulation. You know, you probably uh, are thinking that those initial conditions are what we call the big bang, you know, the tight ball of plasma, high temperature, high pressures, and then the run button is hit, say run, and that ball of plasma starts to expand according to the rule set, which is what we call science, physics, you know, basic rules of how reality works. So that then just evolves to produce a virtual reality. And that virtual reality eventually evolves, you know, suns and planets and solar systems and, you know, things like us, you know, come out of that. And then this consciousness can play those characters and make all their choices. And why would they want to do that? Because otherwise consciousness just communicates. It's like being in a big chat room and the choices just aren't that important. The choices just don't have, don't have the, the oomph needed to really learn major lessons. Not, there's very few consequences to being a person in a chat room. You know, you can do whatever you want. You can tell the truth. You can lie. You can say anything. And so can everybody else. And nothing really has much traction. So this virtual reality was required so that consciousness could evolve more efficiently, more effectively. So we log on to, you know, I, consciousness, log on to Tom Campbell, this avatar, and I make all those choices. And now in this virtual reality with this real tight rule set, we do more than just communicate with each other. We interact with each other. You know, we cause each other problems and we give each other solutions. We fight. We, you know, we, we're, uh, you know, it's life and death. It's a, it's a tough place to be, but it's a great place to learn. It's a great place to, to grow up. So that's that free will awareness unit is that piece of the larger consciousness system that is making our choices. So yes, we are all one. The people that say that actually, are, it's true, we are, because we're all parts of that larger consciousness system. So we're all piece parts. If you think of a Venn diagram, you have the system and inside the system, there's a piece of that system that's the, that's the individuated unit of consciousness and then a piece of that individuated unit of consciousness, that's the free will awareness unit. So it's, it's all of it is really just subsets of the larger consciousness system. Tom, tell our, our Mindful Tribe listeners why this all came to be known as my big toe theory. How did, how did you come up with that? <laughs> well, uh, well, the way I, I, I created it was I looked at all the facts that I knew about consciousness, and that was after about 35 years of studying consciousness. Um, and I had two parallel careers. One was in consciousness research and one was in uh, physics. Uh, the conscious research I did at night and the physics I did in the daytime. So basically after a long time, I thought I knew enough about consciousness to make a good consciousness model. So I took all the facts of consciousness 
And I took all the facts of the physical world, which I knew most of because I'm a physicist, and I came up with a, an idea, a theory, a model that would explain all of those facts on both sides and explain everything we know now, which means in the objective and the subjective world, as well as make projections about things that we don't know now. So that's how I made it. And that's called a, a toe, a theory of everything. Now, Einstein coined that word, theory of everything, when he was trying to unite relativity and quantum physics, because those two really at a foundational level, they don't really get along with each other too well. Each one has an assumption that the other one denies exists. So Einstein knew there was something bigger. You know, they, they weren't the final answer. There was had to be something bigger above them in the hierarchy of causality, something above them that could explain both of them. And then they would be kind of both part of a bigger thing. You know, so he worked on that for the last 20 years of his life and failed. He didn't come up with a, with a toe theory of everything. Now, in my world, that toe was just a, a objective toe. That's all. It was just quantum physics and relativity. That's the objective world. But mine was about also the subjective world because consciousness is subjective. So my toe, I couldn't, I didn't want to say that this was a toe that would be confusing. So I call it a big toe. And then that's of course kind of amusing at the same time, but I figured, all right, that's a good attention getter. You know, that might pull some people browsing the bookshelf or big toe. What's that about? Particularly if you find it in the you know, philosophy or physics, uh, you know, sections of the shelf that might draw attention. So I said, all right, we'll go with that. But the point of it is, is not that I'm so proud of it, that it's my big toe. Hey, my big toe, I made it. That's not the point. The point is that it's based on my experience. And if it's not your experience, it can't be your truth. You can't, something that you know to be true can't be based on somebody else's experience. You have to experience it yourself. So I, I wondered my readers to not believe what I said, but rather to go find out for themselves, because you have to, you know, when, when we're talking about the internal world of consciousness, we're talking about that subjective state. You can't read about that, what other people feel. You've got to go do it and get there on your own. So I specifically call it my big toe to let people know that you have to find your own big toe. This is mine based on my experience. And if you can use that as a model to help you find your own, well, good. Use it as a model. Use what parts of it work and throw the rest away. And that's the way you should approach it. So that's why I called it uh, my big toe. And how long did it take you to write the first, uh, the first volume? Well, the whole thing, all three volumes took me five years to write. And that was a pretty, uh, that, that was a lot of time in those five years. I probably put five to six hours a day, probably six days a week for those five years. So that wasn't uh, light work. No, I, I ignored most of what else was going on in my family to do that because it was, it took so much time to put it together. And partly 
it took a lot of time because I was still figuring it out myself. You know, when you, when you write things down, it forces you to become clear. When you just think about things, you think you have all sorts of answers and understand all sorts of things. And then when somebody challenges you to write it down, you'll realize that some of your ideas are kind of fuzzy. They don't really have strong, continuous logic in them, and you have to solve those problems. So writing it down was part of the process of creating it, I guess. I had the general idea, but I didn't have all the logic. But now it's just, it is a logical thing. It's, it's a science. You know, it starts with just two assumptions. Consciousness exists and that, that uh, evolution exists. And after that, everything's logically derived from there from there on. So it uh, it's a little intimidating for people who don't do logical process, you know, the kind of the right brain people. Uh, they struggle a bit with it because it's all logical process. And uh, on the other hand, for people uh, like me, you know, physicists and mathematicians and carpenters and plumbers and doctors and lawyers, you know, people who both basically have to think logically to do what they do. Right. They're constantly problem solving how to, how to do things. Uh, those people take to it very easily because that's just the way they think as well. And that's purposely, I did it that way. I could have been a little friendlier to the right brain people, but you know, they already have hundreds of books written for them, you know, because they're written kind of as poetry, you know, big idea kind of things without any logical process underneath of it. You know, it's not logical. It's just here the way it is. And they look at it and say, that feels right. It's because they deal with, with it feeling right, not with the logic that proves it's right. So they have lots and lots of books in this, in this area. And the people who do logical process don't. They didn't have any books in this area. So you take your typical engineer and you give him a Bhagavad Gita or something like that, you know, and he'll look at it and say, this doesn't make any sense. You get some guy on a chariot that's at a war talking about, you know, what? And after about page five, he throws the book away and says, there's nothing in there for me because it's, it's not logical process. It's poetry. You have to understand the metaphors and what's being said is all metaphorical not literal. Well, people who are logical process really like literal and don't care too much for metaphorical because that's confusing. Metaphors can be interpreted four or five different ways, you know, so they generally don't like that sort of thing. So my book is kind of the on-ramp for the logical process people so that now they can also get to an understanding of consciousness and the larger reality you know, things like the paranormal become normal. They're not para, you know, they're not outside of normal. They, they are outside of materialism, but so is all of intuition. All that paranormal stuff is on the intuitive side, not on the intellectual side. And most intellectuals don't really have much of an intuitive side. They tend to reject the intuition as being uh, unreliable and mostly just you making stuff up. So that's, so that's really what the My Big Toe is. You know, it's a book about consciousness, about reality, about physics, and, and all of science, actually, metaphysics, 
and it will explain your thoughts and feelings as well as you know why particles ought to be represented as probability distributions <laughs> in quantum physics. Yes. Right? It explains both of those. And when you made your theories available to the world, what were some of the biggest challenges that came back to you? Well, you know, the biggest challenge was to put it down on paper so that people could understand it. Yeah. Yeah, that was the hard thing. This is a very, I mean, talking about reality as a virtual reality and you're not you know, your physical body is an avatar and your consciousness is the player. That's pretty far out for most people to deal with. That's a huge paradigm shift. So the the big challenge was to say all that and to introduce logical people in a logical way to, you know, those kinds of thoughts. So it had to all be, you know, it had to all be very rational. So I started at the beginning and, and worked our way through it. But the way I actually wrote it, the last book was the one I wrote first, <laughs> you know, and the, so I didn't just sit down and write the books like that. So, you know, I wrote this stuff and I said, geez, I got, this is going to be a fat book, but I'll keep on writing until I get it all out. And pretty soon it's like, this is way fat for a book. You know, it's going to have to be two books and then it's going to have to be three books. So I found ways of breaking it up that made sense to me and whatever. But so it was kind of, haphazardly haphazardly created and i had people that were interested in consciousness and understanding themselves that i'd send out pieces i'd say i just did this piece on free will what do you think and they would come back and have issues with it particularly these were technical guys and most of them didn't think free will could possibly exist you know because materialism says it doesn't so they would argue and i'd i'd try to meet their arguments you know Oh, they can't because of this. So I'd have to write something that says, well, that's not actually so. You know, that doesn't do it. And then they'd find some other reason. So I, I wrote a lot of it in response to, to people struggling with it. And I, I, my hope was that by the time it was done, the average person could sit down and read it and make sense out of it and uh, be able to follow it and have most of their questions answered right in the text. And I hear that a lot. I hear people say, gee, you must have written this book for me because I'll be reading it along and I'll say, what, what's that? And then two paragraphs later, you know, it's explained. Well, that's because when I sent that out, somebody said, what's that? And I wrote the explanation underneath of it. So that's why it tends to work that that way, which is also why it tended to get so big that I needed three volumes. Right, right. So I was just going to ask, and you've kind of answered this, what kind of reaction you you received from the, the physics community. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, um, yeah. Those people in the physics community that are not, uh, what shall I say, tied up in beliefs of materialism, who have a, a bigger picture, mm -hmm. They generally loved it, thought it was fantastic. And I got a lot of computer science. I got a lot of engineers. I got a lot of, you know, mathematicians and all sorts of technical people really liked it mm -hmm. because it was totally new for them. But yet there it was, that logical process that they could, they could follow it and get, and get the arguments. So they liked it. Um, now, the physicists who are, who are wedded, to materialism, of course, they would see it all as nonsense because consciousness is not a material thing. Consciousness has no 
space. You don't go from here to there in consciousness. Consciousness is just information system. That, uh, so it, it very much flies in the face of materialism. So that part of science would not pay any attention to it. They wouldn't even read it. You know, that yeah. If they read it, they'd find it rational and logical, and it would, it would challenge them. But for the most part, they're not going to read that because they don't have to, because they already know it couldn't possibly be true because it's not materialistic. You know? right. so that's, I call that a belief trap. You, know, you get in the belief trap. But I have lots of technical people. Matter of fact, when I go give a talk, it's about half techies and about half uh, the right brain people. I get a, a good combination of of both of those. So I have any number of physicists who really like the idea, and uh, I'm sure there's many more who would hate the idea. But the the people who are open minded generally don't have issues with it because it it is rational. There aren't assumptions. You know, it's not like uh, dot dot dot, and then a miracle occurred, and we have this. You know. Yeah. It doesn't have any of that in it. It all uh, makes sense. And that's something that, that I loved so much about it. And so many people do, I think, appreciate that about it. When you do talks, uh, what are some of the biggest um, or most difficult questions that people ask of you that, you know, that maybe you really have to stop and, and think about how you're going to word your answer? Well, I try to be careful how I word my answers on almost everything because I've noticed that typically once, I, every time I give a talk, I put it on, up on YouTube. I try to get video and audio of everything I do and it all goes on YouTube for free. So I've got, I don't know, 1500 hours, you know, of, of, uh, of programming up on YouTube. That's a lot. It is. That's enough to be intimidating. You know, it's lots and lots of stuff. But a, a lot of those have like 100,000 views. The older ones do have more than that. But uh, if you're going to say something that 100,000 people are going to look at, you need to be careful what you say. You always have to be careful to do, well, it's impossible to do no harm, but you have to do much less harm than you do good. Sometimes if you crash people's bubbles and crash their, their beliefs, it's it's upsetting and it actually is you know can put them into a funk or make them depressed or something so i have to always be very careful that i um, keep everything such that it does the least harm possible not easy to do all the time some subjects i just don't go to like the big controversial stuff i i would never get in an argument with vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers you know things like that that's just you know, two believers each have their own sets of belief and they're just going to, they're just going to, well, you know what they're just going to yeah. do. And it, it won't, it won't be pretty. No. You know? it, it gets, it gets ugly no. and it gets dysfunctional right. and it doesn't go anywhere because it's, so I, I avoid those kinds of things where there are very strong beliefs. You know, people are caught in belief traps and when there's very strong beliefs, there's no point in trying to talk to a believer about something that is contradictory to their beliefs because they just won't go there. If they believe it, they know it must be wrong. Just like the, the you know, the people committed to materialism, you know, they're just believers. So they don't need to read the book because it couldn't possibly be right. Right. You see, it's that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's just, 
no point in starting that argument. So those kinds of things I don't talk about. I encourage people to ask the hard questions. You know, I encourage people not to try to be polite, you know, with the questions. So if you want to say, well, Tom, what makes you think all this stuff isn't just your imagination? You know, how do you know any of this stuff you tell us is real? Since the, the consciousness is all uh, uh, subjective. You know, well, those are good questions. And I, you know, I, I welcome those. So I don't really find hard questions. All the questions are actually easy. And they're easy because this isn't something I studied. This is something that's been my life for the last, uh, you know, 45 years or so, yeah. well, more than that, 50 some years. And I understand it so well that I, there isn't really anything they can ask that to me is a, is a problem. Sure, sure. Answering it. Well, speaking of that, let's talk specifically about consciousness. So tell our listeners about consciousness, what happens to us when we, when we pass from this life? Okay. <clears throat> and the first thing I'll have to say is a little bit about how I got that kind of information, because as soon as I do that, you know, the audience says, how does he know? How, how does he know that's the way it is? That's impossible. Nobody knows. Nobody can know. Yeah. Well, that's not true. When you're, when you understand consciousness and you gain some discipline in your with your consciousness so you don't have thoughts that are going around you can get to a state i call point consciousness where you've let go of all your sense data you're just a point of consciousness floating in the void when you can do those things and hold those states for as long as you want to then you're in a different world now there's lots of information and things that you can find out on the intuitive side there's lots of data out there. There's lots of information on that intuitive side that's available to us. That's why people, when they get into those uh, intuitive moments and they have their problem solved, the aha moment that suddenly things fall together, that comes out of our intuition. That's where most creative people get a, much of their work, whether you're an artist or a writer or whatever, you know, it comes out of that intuitive side. Well, there's lots of data there. And you can, every consciousness is netted with every other consciousness. So you can join a consciousness. You can communicate telepathically. You can just join them and be with them, be a part of them uh, and connect with them. And the way that I, I know about basically what happens when you die is several times I have connected with someone who was dying and just went with them. So we're mind to mind connected and they die and I just kind of go along with them on their trip on their path and just stay with them. So I have that. Um, also, many, many years ago, when I was just beginning to figure a lot of this out, um, the, the consciousness system helped me figure things out and gave me some things that would be educational. And one of them was that I got a job in the what I call the transition reality, which is where you end up. When you die here, you end up in this transition reality. So I worked there for a couple of months. That means every night I go to bed, I'd start to go to sleep. And before I'd go to sleep, boom, I'd be there. It wasn't my will to do that. It was just given to me. You know, it was given to me as a set of experiences. So that went on for probably three or four months. It, you know, it was pretty much seven nights a week unless there was something that really had me preoccupied. But, but uh, so then I spent some time there with people matriculating through, being part of the process. 
So I've got those two things. And it's a simple process. When you die, it, well, first we said we start with a free will awareness unit. That's, that's our player, right? And this is the avatar. So that's the player. So when the avatar dies, then the player is no longer getting any information from the server about what their avatar is doing because the avatar is now dead. So that stops. Now at that point, the player, which is this free will awareness unit, it begins to, to re-merge with the individuated unit of consciousness of which it is a part. In other words, there was a, a what do we call it, a partition put down, you know, keep the, the metaphor of digital you know, computing there. There was a partition and the free will awareness unit is just on this side of the partition and the individual unit of consciousness is all the rest of the system. So that partition starts to come down. Now, immediately from the, from the, from the free will awareness unit's experience, the free will awareness unit experiences that they are no longer in the physical universe. Wherever it is they were, they're no longer, they're no longer there. Sort of like Dorothy when she says, uh, we're no longer in Kansas, type that. Yeah. So, and then something will come and and uh, interact with them. And a being of light or something will come and say, well, it's this way or over here. And their memory initially, very quickly is good. They remember their past life, but that past life begins to fade just like dreams fade. So when you, you know, you have a dream and instantly when you wake up, it's really clear. Yes. Two minutes, two minutes later, it's, it's less clear. And, you know, a couple hours later, you just remember a couple of the highlights if you remember anything at all. Yeah. So it just fades. Well, that's the way your memory of this life does. It just fades out and you are, you end up in this reality that I call the transition reality. And basically that reality is just there to let you let go, decompress and kind of, you know, get ready to, to move on to what's next. So it's a, it's a, a letting go place. And often there, there are relatives there to greet you, relatives who have died, but these are not really those relatives. These are, uh, what can we say? They're the larger consciousness system playing those relatives within the boundaries that define those rel relatives according to the database that's, that's in consciousness. So that's just to make you feel at ease because everything's happy, everything's positive. And if you have been around this cycle enough, then you're not really distressed. You just say, okay, you know, let's get on with it. What's next? And then you don't necessarily have relatives, other things. You don't need that. You've, you've kind of outgrown that part. If you're more in the beginning of it, then you need something to quiet you down in order to, but that's positive. You know, have I gone to hell? Oh no, I really wasn't a good boy, you know, all the time. Uh, you know, and those are fears people come in with. So it's a, it's a positive place. And it's a lot of kind of, well, I don't know, make work uh, things. They give you things to do that really aren't important. It's just buying time to let go. Now, when you've let go to the point that you're ready for something more substantial, other than just being in the transition, then you will 
look at what you know what you need to learn here we are all learning we're pieces of consciousness we're trying to evolve our consciousness and we do that by making good choices low entropy choices that's choices toward caring and cooperation and love so that's what we're here for so you think about it and you say well okay i had a really big problem this last time with anger management i just kept getting angry all the time and then you think you'll, you'd like to work on that. So you kind of put in a request. You know, I understand I have this problem and, and could you, you know, line me up with something that my next experience. So the system then will find a good experience for you. And pretty soon that IUOC partitions off another free will awareness unit and off you go. Now you're Susie Chang and you're a little girl and you're in China. And uh, that's different. Before you were, you know, Joe Schmo, and you were a big, a big guy, you know, a lumberjack up in the Northwest. So you get lots of varied experience because, you know, like we know, diversity is, is growth inducing. Diversity is good. You don't want just the same experience, the same group of friends, the same situation, the same background. Everything is different. So then you go and you do that lifetime. And you come back and then you do another one. Now, if you were there in that transition and somebody said, well, what would you like to work on next? And you'd say, nothing. I don't have anything to work on. I'm almost perfect just the way I am. Well, then they'd probably do a life review with you. And this life review would just kind of skip through periods in your life where you were anything but perfect, <laughs> you know, where <laughs> yeah. you were where you were you know, going crazy, uh, flying off the handle, you know, getting angry over nothing important uh, then they show you all kinds of problems that you had in your life. And uh, then you'd probably make excuses. Yeah, but that's just because they made me angry. It wasn't me. It was them. You know, they, by the time they're done here, you are convinced that you need to grow up some and you need to learn and the kind of things you need to learn. And then something's picked out for you and you do it. But now I want to emphasize all through this process, you always have free will. You always have choice. If it's like, well, it's time to get back in the game and you say, no, I don't want to. That's it. You don't have to. You can just sit out as long as you want. Or even if you, so, if you say, I don't want to go to that virtual reality. I want to go to some other virtual reality. Okay, you can do that. Uh, when they pick somebody for you for your next incarnation, I call that actually an experience packet. Mm -hmm. When you go to your next experience packet, if you they tell you a little bit about it, and if you don't like that, you can say no, find me another one. So the system never forces you to do anything because free will is never abridged in the system because whenever you abridge somebody's free will, you create a problem or make a problem worse. That's not a solution to anything or anybody's growth. You know, you can't force people to grow up. Right. They have to do it from the inside out. So right. they have to make that choice and go. So you always have free will. So that's basically what it is, is you keep uh, getting new experience packets because growing up, getting rid of all that fear. That's what we mean by growing up, get rid of all the fear. That's how you evolve the quality of your consciousness. And it's, it's hard. Anybody who has fear that's worked on it will tell you that's, it takes a while to do that. And, if you just had one shot at it and then that's, you're done, nobody do very well. No. <laughs> you know, 
And you can't skip to advance things because you have to learn from the bottom up. You know, it's not like, well, I'm going to skip first grade through 12th and go right to college. You know, you can't do that because you're not prepared. You have to learn step by step by step. You have to grow up and reducing your, the entropy of your consciousness, becoming more caring and loving and so on. That happens a little bit at a time. So that's what it's about. You have to have, you have to have this uh, series of experience packets. Otherwise, the whole system would break down. So I, I didn't end up with reincarnation because I thought reincarnation was a cool belief and it should be there. I only put that in there and I called it experience packets rather than reincarnation just to get rid of the words that come with prejudice. You know, so it, it has to be there. It's part, it's an integral part of the whole model. If you don't have that, the model doesn't work. That's because learning, it's all about learning. That's what we're here for, to learn and to grow. And learning and growth are iterative processes. You can't learn everything all at once. You have to learn it in steps. You're not ready to learn B until you've already learned A. So you got to go from A to B to C to D, and all these are iterations. So learning and growing up can't be done all at once. It's a process that you have to go through. You know, and trying to get rid of fear is a long, is a long process. Very long so process. It, it, yeah. yeah. So in the model of consciousness, the the uh, having multiple experience packets was just a necessary part of that model to make the whole model work. Tom, as we uh, as we move toward the end of the interview, I want to go back to the topic of bullying. We talked about self-bullying. I always ask a question about this. Do you have a story about bullying, whether it was as an adult or as a child or a situation where you felt there was this difficult conflict where, you know, it was a challenge to deal with it? Do you have a story where mindfulness would have made a difference had you understood this back then? Oh, yeah, I can come up with one. It, has, it goes back a long, long time ago. And it's pretty much, it's pretty much the last time that I really got angry about something. You know, I got really, you know, out of control, angry kind of thing. Yeah. That's probably the only time that I've done it. haven't done that since. I was probably... Oh, I don't know, maybe 13, mm-hmm. something like that, 12, yeah. 13. And I was uh, at a Boy Scout camp, and I was there for several weeks. And between, you know, one group leaves, another group comes in. And uh, so I was there over the weekend, and I was in this cabin with, uh, I think it was three other boys, and they were all maybe... 15, 16. Mm-hmm. They were all three or four years older than I was. And they were aggressive and they found me being much smaller than them as somebody to pick on. So I did have that, you know, and, uh, you know, they would grab my stuff and throw it around and, you know, typical kid stuff. Yeah. You know how kids, kids do that sort of they thing. They do. Because they're very, because they're very self-centered. Yes. And they don't have any appreciation for, you know, what they're doing to other people when they do that. They're just so self-centered. Yeah. So and anyway, that was going on. And in general, I was a pretty laid back kid. 
I didn't get riled up very easily. But after the third or fourth or fifth, you know, round of that bullying and throwing my things and, you know, messing with, with uh, you know, like t- tearing all the sheets and stuff off the bed and throwing them outside, you know, just, yeah. just annoying things. Yeah, you know? yeah. Nothing, nothing that you couldn't get through, but it just kept going on and on and on. And I realized I was going to have like three, three days of this if I didn't do something about it. Sure. And I knew that uh, going up in the chain and saying these people are, are, are giving me a problem probably wouldn't work. Probably wouldn't work. It hardly ever works. So what I did was uh, the, I got angry and I got angry and I knew that I had to, I had to stand up to them for the best I could. So when that happened again, after I had gotten to the end of my rope, I just hauled off and started slugging this kid, knocked him down and, and uh, hurt him. And after that, the other, they all backed off. I didn't hurt him badly. No, I hurt. I hurt him, probably his ego more than anything else. Sure, but because uh, I was smaller than he was, but he didn't see it coming, and uh, I didn't let up until he was down. So, by the time that happened, I kind of came back to myself and the anger. You know, you kind of all on adrenaline at that point. Yeah, and the adrenaline came back, and I saw that the others weren't going to jump in. They were backing off now, so. You know, they weren't really terribly mean kids. They were just being bullies because they could. Yeah, sure. Making them feel, making themselves feel good and strong and whatever by bullying a, a, a littler kid. So it's not like they really wanted to beat me because they were, they were thugs. They were just kids. So that was the one time that uh, I got bullied and after fighting back, it stopped. So that was a good object lesson for me. You can't, you know, turn the other cheek is really good advice some of the time, but not all the time. Sometime you get to a point where you have to push back. And it didn't matter at that point. I didn't care whether they beat me up or not. I had to vent my, I had to do whatever it is I could. But, you know, now that I think about it, even if they had beat me up, they probably would have stopped doing what they were doing. Right. It probably would have, it probably would have caused an end to it, whether I wanted, they wanted. It wouldn't have made much difference because they would have suddenly realized what they were creating and that it didn't have a good end. So that's my one experience with bullying. Yeah, well, I didn't get bullied. I didn't get bullied very much. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Tom, as we move closer to the end of the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. (laughs) Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence to you? You know, that's hard to say. You know, one of the, on this journey of mine that has kind of ended up in mindfulness, one of the persons that that was a a big influence on me would have been Bob Monroe. Um. Bob was about the same age as my father, I guess. So he was kind of a father figure in that in that sense. He was an older guy. I was in my twenties, and he was in his you know fifties, mm-hmm. going to sixties. And uh, he was a good role model. He was a good role model. He seemed to be able to handle almost everything positively. He, I don't think I ever saw him, you know, get get angry or, or get upset. So that was a good influence, but mostly 
I'm not very easily influenced by anything or anybody. I don't have a lot of favorites or connections like that. I've always probably like my sons, you know, both of my sons, you know, have enough self-confidence for two or three people. And I think I was like that as well. So I, I didn't have a lot of, of books that I read or people that I met or things that really changed me very much because my changes all had to come from inside myself. And they really weren't triggered so much by other people as they were triggered by my seeing that I needed to make the change. Right. My second question, and thanks for answering that. The second question is about emotions. And I just want to have you think back in time. How has the work you've done with consciousness and mindfulness changed how you've dealt with your own emotions? Oh, well, it's, you know, it changes everything. Uh, you know, when I first started on this path, I had a lot of growing up to do. And the thing that, uh, you know, I was a, uh, I was a young physicist uh, in graduate school, you know, what, middle, middle to late twenties, that sort of thing. And if you know any young physicists in graduate school in their twenties, you probably will find out that they're, they're kind of arrogant. You know, they kind of feel like they know everything and they're, they're smarter than, than other people. And it's just, it's it kind of goes with that profession at least when you're young you know because you tend to be a little arrogant anyway when you're young because you're still kind of self-centered when you're young you know they all yeah. kind of go together that's right and uh uh yeah i had to outgrow i had to outgrow that but it just slowly disappears you know as your picture gets bigger and bigger and i think this is the key as you grow up your picture gets bigger and bigger your decision space gets bigger and bigger. That's all the possibilities that you have that you know of. I could do this or I could do that. I could change this way or that way. Whereas somebody that has no idea they could change at all, you know, doesn't have that in their decision space. So as that grows and your picture gets bigger, then you're no longer such a big person in this bigger picture. You begin to realize that you're just a tiny little speck of something you know, that's much bigger than you are. And there's reasons, there's, there's points of being here. There's, you know, there's purpose to your being here. And that helps get rid of most of that arrogance. It helps get rid of most of that self-centeredness. So I'd say the key thing for me was over, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years, my pictures kept getting bigger and bigger. My understanding kept getting bigger and bigger. And I realized that most of me being a, a smart young physicist was totally irrelevant, didn't have any, didn't have any value. You know, that wasn't a concept that carried value. That was a concept that carried negative value, not positive value. There was nothing in it. So what? You know, it wasn't important that that wasn't something that, uh, you know, you should get a gold star for. You should get a gold star based on how caring you are, you know, how much help you can be, uh, that kind of thing. Not, you know, that you studied something that was hard and you know more math than most people and so what? You know, it just doesn't matter. So those things came into perspective as my world got bigger than me being a graduate student. You know? Yeah. As the world got bigger and bigger yeah. and you get more and more things in it, 
so that I think is the is the process. Now mindfulness just comes out of that because when you're aware of a bigger reality, you you are more mindful. Where when you're not mindful, it's because your reality has shrunk to something very small. Instead of being connected to a, a large reality, all you're connected to is habit and and uh, fear, beliefs, ego, and all of that just runs your life. And all of those things make you unhappy and make you miserable. So you you automatically become more mindful just by growing up. You know, it's it's part of growing up. Matter of fact, I would say that the the best measure of maturity, you know, we talk about people growing up, becoming more mature. The best measure of maturity is the degree to which a person is self-centered. Children are going to be self-centered. You know, the younger they are, the more self-centered they're going to be. They indeed do feel like they're at the center of, of you know, the yeah, universe. They do. That's that's children, yeah. and that is the way it should be. You know? Of course. But you start growing up as you start gaining more perspective, and you start letting go of that self-centeredness. And that is a measure of how mature you are. And you and I both probably know people who are in their 50s and 60s and still self-centered, and they just not mature. Definitely still do. In the, they're still in the same mental space as, say, uh, an eight-year-old. Yeah, I definitely you know, do. Or, or, or a 12-year-old. They just have it. They grew up to about eight or 10 or 12, and they just never matured any no, past that point. No. So this idea of being self-centered or not self-centered is really kind of fundamental. And as you let go of that self-centeredness, mindfulness just happens. It just begins to happen because mindfulness requires you to be aware of other, you know, like I say, what, you know, you're aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it, but almost everything in our life is connected to other people. Unless you live alone on an Island, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it has something to do with other people. And you start seeing those other people as being important and significant. It's not just, ah, I've got this board to sand and I need to make it smooth. Well, that may be true in the littlest picture, but this board is going to be part of something better. It's going to be part of something that somebody else is going to use. And it's important that I do it right so that, you know, they don't get splinters from it or so that it fits right or whatever, because it's, it's, it's a part of a bigger thing. It's not just me sanding a board and nothing else matters. But if you're very self-centered, that's the way you see it. It's just you and that board and nothing else matters. And if you can get by with doing a bad job and still get paid the same amount of money, yeah, you do a bad job because that's easier. It is, yeah. See, so it's getting rid of the self-centeredness will make you more mindful because you're more aware of how you interact with others, how you interface and your role. If you don't sand that board right, then something else isn't going to work right. Maybe it won't fit, you know, or some other, some other problem will happen. So in any case, that way you sand that board with mindfulness, that it's important, that it's significant, it needs to be done. And it's now your job or responsibility to do it. So you do it the best you can. You know, and that's true, whether you're washing the dishes after a meal or anything else, you know, you're being part of the solution of your family. When you do those things, it's not like, oh, I got to wash the dishes, you know, and, uh, well, I uh, I won't do a very good job because I can get out quicker if I don't. All that is self-centered right. uh, viewpoint. So, yeah, so it's all about growing up. Right. And as you, gr and as you grow up, 
being mindful just kind of happens. That's part of being mature is being mindful, knowing how you connect and being, you know, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what, how low your task is, it's a part of something bigger and do it, do it well. Yeah, I wonder my dad said, he had, he had a little phrase. He said, if there's anything worth doing, it's worth doing right. Yeah. You probably heard that. Too. I have heard it many times. That's a, yeah. That's a very, very, uh, yeah, my grandfather said that as well. He he said that as well. And uh, what I what I want to do, Tom, is continue on this discussion in part two, and we will uh, we will go to the other three questions that I mentioned in part two, and we just yeah. we'll just leave it here with what you mentioned, your wisdom on self centeredness, and I just want to thank you for being here with us on mindfulness mode today, and uh, look forward to coming back to part two. So thank. Thanks so much, Tom, for being with us. Hey, thank you, Bruce. Great. All the best to you. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here for this extra long episode. And I will play the part two uh, in the next couple of days. So stay tuned for that. And like I mentioned on the last show, my email hasn't been working properly for a couple of weeks. And if you've been emailing me and not received a response, just uh, please accept my apology because my email wasn't working, but it's working now. So you can email me, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Tell me what you think of Tom Campbell, of his theories and his ideas and his uh, thoughts that he presented on the, the podcast. And if you do email me with some of these thoughts, I will send you some mindfulness mode bling i will send you a t-shirt or a mug or a coaster so send me an email let me know what you thought of the episode and i just really appreciate you being here mindful tribe so take what we learned today and reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode <laughs>